Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Known by the codename Agent Fifi, Marie Chilver worked for Britain's Special Operations Executive. She would test trainee agents in hotels and bars to see if she could pry secrets from them through seduction. Enjoy these captivating episodes on Marie Chilver from the original podcast series, Espionage. Every Friday, we cover a real-life spy mission. The stakes, the deception, the gadgets, and how it changed the course of history. Follow Espionage free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. December 7th, 1942, Liverpool. The state cafe was sparsely populated for the lunch service. Leaning against the bar and watching the room, 22-year-old Christine Chilver scanned the faces of each patron in the cafe. She was looking for a man named Toss. She'd never met him or seen a photograph, but she had a very specific description. Toss was 26 years old. He was five foot six inches tall, with brown eyes, a black mustache, and small moles on his left cheek and the right side of his chin. She ran through the description again in her mind, checking each detail against every man who filed into the cafe. Christine couldn't afford to approach the wrong person. Then she saw him. He matched the description perfectly. He was taking a seat near the bar, but she couldn't approach, not yet. She had to wait to study her prey. Finally, as he finished his meal, Christine made her move. She boldly approached his table. She asked him point blank if he was Mr. Toss. The man panicked. He was expecting to meet a tall, dark man with blue eyes at the rendezvous. Who was this gorgeous blonde? Christine couldn't hide her smile. She knew Toss had trained for a variety of high-pressure scenarios, but still she made him flounder. Toss had no idea what to do next. His impulse was to deny his name, but the words wouldn't come out. He just stammered at the beautiful woman as she took a seat across from him. Christine had the young spy just where she wanted him. 
This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. Throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm Carter Roy. You can find all episodes of Espionage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Espionage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on Marie-Christine Chilver, a British agent provocateur who tested special operations executive agents during World War II. Known as Special Agent Fifi, the cunning, beautiful seductress was an expert at coaxing secrets out of unsuspecting targets and at keeping her own secrets hidden. In fact, she was so good that for decades after the war, she was widely considered a myth. However, Christine's personnel file was released by the United Kingdom's National Archives in 2014 and proved that the stories about her were as real as they were legendary. This week, we'll explore Christine's background, follow her escape from a prison camp in France during the German occupation, and hear about her stunning rise in Britain's newest spy agency. Next week, we'll follow Christine's secret assignments for the Special Operations Executive and explore how her extraordinary skill made her a mysterious legend in the annals of espionage. Marie-Christine Chilver was born in London on September 12, 1920. Her father was an English newspaper correspondent stationed in Riga, Latvia. Her mother was Latvian, the daughter of a timber magnate. Christine spent her childhood in Riga, growing up in a villa a few miles outside the capital. She was homeschooled by French and English governesses, and her family had a German maid. Christine learned all three languages in her adolescence, and she spent summers in France and England to perfect her linguistic skills. By the time Christine went to study at the Sorbonne in Paris in 1938, she was fluent in German, French, and English. She was also beautiful, with long, billowing blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. Useful qualities for a spy. The current CIA director, Gina Haspel, has indicated that even today, the agency is investing in foreign language excellence as a core attribute for our officers and good looks are useful for disarming unsuspecting admirers. But neither languages nor looks would protect young Christine on a continent that was about to descend into total war. She was home in Riga for a school holiday in September 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. Her father, terrified for his daughter's safety, sent her to London to study for entrance exams at Oxford, farther from Germany's borders. But the chaos only increased for Christine when her father died a few short months later, in January 1940. Without her father's financial support, Oxford was no longer an option. She'd have to return to the Sorbonne, to France, and to the fringes of an ever-growing war. 
By June of 1940, Hitler and his Nazi army had much of Europe under their control. France's army had fallen to a German invasion in the north, forcing the emergency evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force from Dunkirk. On June 4th, immediately following the Dunkirk battle and escape, Britain's newly elected Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, gave a rousing speech to British Parliament declaring his intention to stop the Nazi scourge. But Churchill's passion did little to help Christine. The war was getting ever closer. On June 14, 1940, the Nazis marched on Paris, bringing her university education to an abrupt halt and throwing her life into turmoil. Tanks rolled down the city streets. A Nazi flag was draped beneath the Arc de Triomphe. The French had lost control of their capital, and any British citizens who failed to evacuate before the invasion were taken prisoner, including Christine. At the end of June, Christine was forced onto a long black train with countless other foreigners from across Paris. The Nazis told them the trains were bound for unknown destinations. Christine was surrounded by terrified British women trapped inside the cold, confined space in the train car. Many of the women around her were weak and ill, ripped from their beds by Nazi soldiers. The ride lasted hours. Some of the women died before reaching the destination. Those left alive waited anxiously, wondering what horrors awaited them. When the train finally stopped, the women had arrived at a decaying army barracks in eastern France, near the town of Besançon. The ghastly conditions at the barracks were worse than Christine could have imagined, even after her train ride. Women of all ages and walks of life were forced into cramped quarters together. Nuns, sex workers, mothers, and their babies, they all slept together on cold stone floors, their only comfort straw-filled bags and dirty army blankets. They were surrounded by lice, rats, and broken windows that did little to shield them from the cold. Their only food was potato soup, gray bread, and imitation coffee. And then there were their clothes. The women were given old French infantry uniforms that had not been washed since they were worn on the battlefield in the First World War. Christine's was decorated with a large, ominous blood stain. She was miserable and afraid, but she was stuck here, and if she couldn't escape, she decided to make the best of the terrible situation. Remember that long blonde hair and her perfect German. Christine used her charm with the German officers. She asked sweetly for little gifts to improve her conditions and conditions for all the women. Food here, a blanket there. Still, it wasn't much. She longed for escape. When, after four dark months, Christine became friendly with Besançon's prison doctor, she saw her chance. She earned his trust, and the doctor helped her escape. The details of this escape are either classified or lost in the fog of war, but what's clear is that Christine managed to cross from northern German-occupied France to Lyon in the unoccupied south, where she went straight to the British consulate, desperate for safety after her experience in Besançon. 
It was at the embassy that she met a wounded Royal Air Force pilot named William Simpson. Flight Lieutenant Simpson had been horribly burned and disfigured after his plane was shot down over France on May 10, 1940. While trapped inside the burning wreck, his skin melted from his hands and the left side of his face. When Christine met him at the consulate hospital, Simpson was still suffering and required constant care. Christine wanted out of France. But while she waited for an opportunity, she wanted to be useful to help in even a small way as this awful war raged on. And so she tended to Simpson, helping to feed and bathe him. The two became quite friendly, taking long walks together throughout the city. But Simpson didn't plan to stay in Lyon forever. He was desperate to get back to England. The war was taking dramatic turns each day, and he knew that if he didn't leave France soon, he might not see his homeland again. Leaving was easier said than done, though, even from unoccupied France. It was only after a great deal of work on the part of Simpson's friends at the American consulate that they were assured special permission to leave the country. But there was still one small problem. Due to his condition, he couldn't travel alone. He needed a travel companion. Christine was the natural choice. A British citizen stuck in Lyon who already had proven herself a capable nurse. And she was more than happy to take this ticket home and get back to England where her father had hoped she'd weather the war. It was settled. But the decision wasn't just joyful, it was also terrifying. Both Simpson and Christine had to ensure all the proper documents were in place, that their itineraries were planned down to every last detail. They'd be crossing several borders where they would surely be questioned. And any hint of inconsistency during these uncertain times in Europe could prevent them from returning to Britain or worse. Christine was not keen on ending up back in a Nazi prison camp. But the risk was worth it if it meant getting out of the stasis in Lyon and a chance to start again in London. On October 10, 1941, Christine and Simpson set out on the journey back to Britain. They first flew to Barcelona, Spain. Though they were assured there would be no issue boarding a flight to Madrid and then London, they were denied tickets at the airport due to the surge of refugees fleeing Europe. This unexpected delay put them in a tight spot. Christine only had a 72-hour permit for travel in Barcelona, and it was about to expire. Also, the border could close at any minute, depending on the political whims of the Nazis. This was not the time to be left in a foreign country without valid traveling documents. Christine waited early the next morning at the train station, their last hope to make it out of Barcelona in time. She managed to secure two tickets just minutes before the train left the station. Crisis had been averted, at least for now. When they arrived in Madrid, Simpson reported to Wing Commander Dixon, an attaché at the British Embassy, who insisted that Simpson and Christine stay with him at his home. They enjoyed a home-cooked meal and a recently premiered movie called Target for Tonight. Christine welcomed the brief respite and almost felt like it was a normal night with friends instead of a fraught escape from war. The following night, Dixon bid them farewell as their sleeper train rolled slowly off towards Lisbon. 
When they arrived at the Spanish frontier station of Valencia del Cantara the next morning, they were careful not to draw any unnecessary attention during the hours-long customs process. They were so close to home, this was the last chance for a mistake. There was a strong sense of distrust among the passengers and security officials in this heavily policed station. The hours ticked by, but finally, Christine and Simpson crossed the last few miles between Spain and Portugal. They could finally breathe. Portugal was one of England's allies and a neutral zone. They were safe. From here, it was a short plane ride home. The two landed safely in Bristol, England on October 22, 1941. Upon their arrival, an ambulance waited to take Simpson to the hospital for continued care. Their long journey together had come to an end, and Simpson expected an emotional farewell. But as he got in the ambulance, Christine bid him a simple bonne chance, the French expression for good luck. Then she turned and left. This abrupt goodbye seemed odd to Simpson. He was convinced Christine was up to something, and it was a suspicion that would come back to haunt her. Up next, Christine faces more questions. Now, back to the story. In late October 1941, Christine Chilver returned to London after making her escape from a prison deep in Nazi Europe. She accompanied a young, wounded Royal Air Force lieutenant as a caregiver, but abandoned him as soon as the plane hit the tarmac. Still, she didn't run off into the ether, Like most who made it from the continent to England during the war, Christine was put through Britain's rigorous security process. She was interrogated for several days by MI5 officers at the London Reception Center, a reception center meant to root out spies. According to biographer Bernard O'Connor, the officers would try to gather information about how the subject escaped, what routes they took, how much they paid, and the contact details of people who helped them, as well as what the current prices were for goods and services rationing, train timetables, etc. This intelligence was used to help them to support escape organizations operating behind enemy lines. The officers needed to determine whether Christine was who she claimed to be, an Englishwoman who was loyal to the crown, or if she was using a false identity and working with the Germans. They questioned her about her family, education, work experience, and political affiliations. They wanted the names of her friends and anyone she could identify who was involved with resistance against the Nazi invaders. Christine responded openly. She told them about her childhood in Riga, her early education around Europe, and her studies at the Sorbonne. But when she told the story of her capture by the Germans and her imprisonment in Besançon, The mood in the interrogation room changed immediately. The officers were alarmed to learn that she had fallen into the enemy's hands. They abruptly switched their questions from English to German, and Christine revealed that she could understand every word. She was speaking the enemy's language, had just returned from an enemy encampment, and while she was British, she had spent most of her life in Latvia, which was now under Soviet control. Making it to England apparently didn't mean safety. One misstep now, and Christine could be sent back to prison. This time, a British one. 
Christine was visibly shaken by the abrupt turn in the interrogation. But the security officers were surprisingly calm. She was answering well, and they were starting to suspect that Christine might be extremely valuable to a fledgling intelligence organization. At the outset of World War II, Britain's Secret Intelligence Service, or SIS, was already a thriving operation. But England needed another agency to aid her allies in Nazi-occupied countries. This new spy agency was the brainchild of the Minister of Economic Warfare, Hugh Dalton. It was called the Special Operations Executive, known as the SOE. The SOE's mission was clear. Its operatives would directly support resistance behind enemy lines and attack the German forces from within. SOE trainees underwent rigorous training in sabotage and subversion techniques. They learned how to use codes and ciphers, disguises, propaganda, and wireless radio communication. They also practiced marksmanship, unarmed combat, and silent killing methods. After several weeks, Promising students were sent to the finishing program in Beaulieu for further specialized training, including parachute jumps, Morse code, map reading, and covert identities for field missions. During their final exercise, students would be sent on 96-hour-long test missions. Through these examinations, instructors could observe their students' strengths and weaknesses in the field. But there were some fatal flaws with the process. Since its inception, numerous SOE agents had fallen into enemy hands and revealed sensitive information about their missions. This cost the lives of their fellow agents, in both the SOE and SIS, who were sent directly into traps laid by the Germans with the information provided by the compromised SOE agents. To avoid similar disasters in the future, the SOE needed to find a way to test their agents' discretion and loyalty in the field using something, or someone, that students would never suspect. Someone uniquely skilled in the art of deception, an intelligent, astute, and cunning provocateur. The security officers realized they just found the perfect candidate. They filed a report on the interrogation and sent it over to the SOE administration for review. The report said Christine's German was absolutely first class. It also noted that her intelligence is much above the ordinary. But as they waited for a reply, the security officers let Christine go, satisfied she wasn't a spy. During the months following her interrogation, she worked in London at the Ministry of Information doing French and German translations. She also wrote foreign propaganda articles. Her work was exemplary, and she immediately impressed her superiors. But they weren't the only ones she was impressing. The SOE reviewed her file and were delighted with what they found. Christine's multilingual abilities, combined with her Germanic appearance, intelligence, and her knowledge of European affairs, made her uniquely qualified for their new position. They wanted her to test their new agents. On September 11, 1942, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gabriel Roach, the head of general security in the British wartime government, officially outlined her job offer. Roach instructed that Christine be brought on for a rate of 300 pounds a year. He wrote, 
She has quite unusual gifts of intelligence, courage, and assessment of character. I have in mind that she should come on three months probation as this work is entirely experimental. But before Christine could accept the position, a troubling report surfaced that brought her loyalty into question. The report outlined the comments of one RAF Flight Lieutenant, William Simpson. During Simpson's debrief after returning from Lyon, he had raised concerns about Christine. According to the report, filed almost a year earlier on October 29, 1941, Simpson said that Christine's well-fed and well-kept appearance when he met her in Lyon was a startling contradiction to her story about escaping from a Nazi prison camp in France. He also called Christine one of the most expert liars in the world and told them that despite his efforts, he could not get the measure of her. He suspected she was pro-German. Simpson had proven his loyalty and strength of character, and his warning was taken very seriously. But his anger also could have stemmed from her abrupt conclusion to their budding relationship. Perhaps Simpson was simply a scorned lover seeking revenge. The matter was taken up with MI5, the British domestic intelligence branch. They investigated Christine's case and closely monitored her communications. She had no idea they were watching, or how close she was once again to a prison cell. But she got lucky. MI5 concluded that the accusations of her pro-Nazi allegiance could not be substantiated. Furthermore, Christine's skills had proven too valuable to ignore. They officially cleared her for duty, noting that Christine was highly commended for the quality of her work and loyalty. With no evidence to support Simpson's suspicions, Christine was offered her job, and she accepted it. She'd made it out of a prison camp and out of France entirely, and she was relieved to be away from the front lines, but she'd also seen firsthand what the Nazis were doing. And if the SOE thought she had a unique ability to help the war effort, well, she would make sure to prove them right. She accepted a position with the SOE as their new provocateur. According to the International Spy Museum, that means an operative sent to incite a target group to action for purposes of entrapping or embarrassing them. On September 24th, 22-year-old Christine Chilver was issued a new identity. From now on, she would be known as Christine Collar, a Parisian journalist. Christine memorized the cover story, cleverly woven out of both truth and fiction. She was given false documents to prove her identity should she be questioned by police. Then she was sent to the Humby Hotel in Leicester, where she awaited further details on her first assignment. Christine found that the hotel and town were drab, and she spent much of her time in a room, ruminating on the lackluster accommodations and her idleness. Why wasn't anyone getting in contact to provide mission details? But Christine wasn't in Leicester for her own mission. She was the bait for someone else. An agent known as Mott was tailing Christine. He was tasked with making contact with her to assess how well she upheld her new identity. Mott was also a provocateur, but for now, Christine was the target to be entrapped and embarrassed. Mott arrived at the Humby Hotel on September 28, 1942, just hours after Christine. 
but when he searched the common areas of the hotel, there was no sign of his blonde-haired, blue-eyed target. The next morning, Mott waited in the hotel restaurant, having a leisurely breakfast while he scanned the room for Christine. He had thoroughly filled up on toast and marmalade and almost given up hope that she'd appear when Christine finally entered the restaurant. Mott wasted no time introducing himself under the guise of his cover story. He claimed to be a government insurance official, a falsehood she appeared to accept as truth. But Christine was on to him. To anyone eavesdropping, the two spies were simply discussing the dreary town and terrible weather, but their words were carefully selected weapons, intended to entrap the other in a lie as the conversation continued. Mott asked Christine about her upbringing, and she explained that she was French and had traveled over much of Europe, spending most of her time in the Baltic countries, particularly in Latvia. Her cover story was holding strong. Mott tried to sniff out any hint of Axis sympathies, but he drew a blank. At a quarter to eleven, he excused himself. She was cunning. He'd need to meet with her again. She, meanwhile, reassured him that she was staying in town, and they were sure to meet again. Later that evening, Christine stayed in her room, writing. Downstairs in the Humby Hotel lounge, Mott struck up conversations with fellow guests and staff, attempting to ply whatever details about Christine he could. Perhaps she'd slipped up with a civilian and revealed some sensitive bit of information. But Mott found that Christine had received no undue attention during her stay. The only thing Mott did learn was that she was writing in her room, but this was hardly explosive evidence of wrongdoing. So far, Christine's cover hadn't been compromised. Still, she'd have to come out of her room eventually, and when she did, Mott would be waiting. The following morning at breakfast, Christine joined Mott at his table. They talked about their passions in life, and Christine revealed that she had always enjoyed writing and had become a freelance journalist. She said she considered the occupation ideal because the job was excellent for sharpening one's appreciation of the surrounding scene in the search for copy. Christine knew the game was afoot, and she was carefully spinning her words. Before leaving, she told Mott that if they met again, she hoped it would be in better surroundings than the Humby Hotel. Christine bid him farewell and thanked Mott for helping her pass a dreary sojourn pleasantly. As he watched her go, Mott couldn't help but wonder if she had known his true intentions. He hoped he hadn't made himself obvious. Mott's final report to the SOE hierarchy was a glowing recommendation for the young, gorgeous blonde who had charmed him for two days, without revealing a thing. Mott wrote, I certainly formed a most favorable impression of Christine for employment with us. During the whole of our conversations, her cover story was perfectly maintained in spite of the fact that I did all that I could to draw out flaws and inconsistencies. Supervisors have asked me whether I thought her appearance perhaps too striking, and I do not think it at all a disadvantage. She is an intelligent and well-informed conversationalist. Christine had passed the final test. She was officially an operative with a special operations executive. Now, it was time for her first assignment. 
Up next, Christine gets to work as a provocateur. Now, back to the story. In September 1942, 22-year-old Christine Chilver passed her SOE security test with flying colors. She was now ready for her first 96-hour mission. As an agent provocateur, her objective was to track down her target operative, strike up a conversation, and attempt to extract sensitive information or entrap them in a lie. Christine's new commander was a 43-year-old RAF officer named Cyril Miller. Miller's job was to grill SOE students prior to their infiltration behind enemy lines. His goal was to give students a dose of what they'd get in the field, especially if they were captured by the enemy. Now, that was Christine's goal, too. Miller sent her the following brief for her first mission. We shall be requiring you to go on another exercise to Liverpool starting next Sunday, the 6th of December. The agent in this case is of the following appearance. Age 26, height 5 foot 6 inches, black hair, sallow complexion, heavy dark eyebrows, large brown eyes, thin concave nose, black mustache, large mouth, thick lower lip, small moles on left cheek and right side of chin, dark jowl. He will be in the bar lounge of the State Cafe in Dale Street at 12.15 hours, Monday, 7th December. You will proceed to Liverpool on Sunday by any train. A room will be booked for you at the Liverpool Adelphi Hotel. I trust you will have a successful exercise. Time to get to work. When Christine arrived in Liverpool on December 7th, 1942, she headed directly to the rendezvous point. She had learned that the target agent's cover name was Toss. That bit of information gave her a starting gambit. Christine waited at the State Cafe bar as Toss finished his lunch. Then she boldly approached his table. She asked him point blank if he was Mr. Toss. The young, inexperienced agent panicked. Toss thought he was to meet a tall, dark man with blue eyes at the rendezvous, but Christine showed up instead. Christine didn't waste any time waiting for his response. She knew it was best to present her cover quickly to head off his questions. A cover, according to the Spy Museum, is the purported occupation or purpose of an agent. It must be consistent with the agent's background and presence in the target area. A cogent story was crucial to earning trust quickly. So Christine launched into her story, explaining that she was a journalist writing about the war transport department. She said she had been asked to meet him and was instructed to be as useful as possible to him. Her gambit was working. The flurry of information left no room for Toss to think straight. He was so flustered that he didn't even play his simplest card, the password. A password was given to every SOE student for use during these exercises. It allowed them to verify the identity of their correct assigned contact. But Christine was talking so fast that Toss forgot all about it. Without this verification, he could have been talking to anyone from a curious civilian to a Nazi spy. They ordered coffee. Christine kept talking. She leaned in with her wit and charm. She pretended to know all about Toss's job and the SOE training system, when in reality, she had little knowledge of it. 
She spoke with authority and continued playing the part. Toss was convinced that Christine was an SOE instructor who was there to help him. She offered Toss general advice, attempting to coax him into revealing his secrets, and it worked beautifully. Toss told Christine all about his specialty training at the school in Beaulieu, that he was a sabotage agent on his first multi-day exercise. He believed the task he had been assigned on this test mission was to prepare a railway sabotage organization. He was supposed to go see Mr. Williamson, the director of the Majestic Cinema, on Tuesday morning. Unfortunately for Toss, his mission didn't matter. The goal of the entire exercise was for Christine to make contact and press him for information. She was more successful than she or the SOE ever could have anticipated. Toss told her he was going to introduce himself as a journalist to Mr. Williamson. He also revealed several tactics he was considering to make his acquaintance with Mr. W less suspicious. Toss continued to speak to Christine as if she knew all about it. Christine let him talk, making mental notes of each piece of information the hapless new spy was revealing. Toss believed that once he made it through this assignment, he'd do a month's fieldwork before the SOE would send him on a real mission on the continent. He thought he'd most likely be sent to Belgium, where he'd be assigned sabotage work and organizing guerrillas. Unfortunately, Toss was flunking out fast. Christine's provocative tactics worked flawlessly. The two spent the entire day together, taking in a movie, dinner, and dancing, All the while, Toss was leaking sensitive information about himself without realizing it. During the course of the day, Christine learned all about Toss's Belgian upbringings and family, his travels, and even the names of people involved with the resistance in France. Christine had proved that if he was released into the field, Toss could pose a serious security threat if a charming woman came along. That evening, Christine bade him adieu and went home to write her final report for the SOE. The mission summary was a damning account for young Toss. Christine wrote, I learned practically all there was to know about him. He had been instructed to meet a tall, dark man with blue eyes at the rendezvous. I met him instead, and that was the only thing he seemed to think odd about my approaching him. He had been talking quite confidentially to a person whose only credentials were the phrase... I have been asked to help you. Christine had instantly proven her value to the SOE ten times over. She had successfully alerted the SOE of the potential threat that Toss posed. He was a careless and undesirable spy. That was her job, and she was exceptional at it. But Christine was just getting started, and the greatest test of her abilities was still to come. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. For more information on Agent Fifi, amongst the many sources we used, we found Agent Fifi and the Wartime Honey Trap Spies by Bernard O'Connor extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Espionage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Espionage, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Espionage on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Balsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Espionage was written by Angela Herrer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>